Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In August 2021, after a 20-year intervention, NATO forces suddenly withdrew from Afghanistan leaving the Taliban to take over the country. How desperate does an individual have to be to risk everything? Those images of people holding on to a U.S. Air Force carrier. People around the world will will not be able to get out of their minds for quite some time. The world was horrified. But in a year, where the international spotlight turned to Ukraine, we somehow didn't notice the humanitarian catastrophe that's unfolded ever since. We didn't have anything to eat. My elder daughter was admitted to a clinic for almost two or three months. That's the reason why I sold my daughter. Parents telling us that they're giving their children tranquilizers so that their hungry children stop crying and go to sleep. According to the United Nations, this is the world's worst humanitarian disaster. Afghanistan has become an urgent problem. The UN says 90% of Afghans don't have enough to eat, and over half the population need emergency assistance. Afghanistan is a humanitarian crisis, but it's not only that, it's an economic crisis. It's a climate crisis, it's a hunger crisis, it's a financial crisis, but it is not a hopeless crisis. After the Taliban took over, foreign governments pulled all the aid that had kept the country going. Now, there are just a handful of foreign aid agencies who are trying to plug the gap. Not only did these people have decent homes to live in, but their community had been brought back together again. So how does Afghanistan recover after decades of conflict and all whilst the Taliban are still in charge? Amid all the despair, are there some signs of hope? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, rebuilding Afghanistan from the rubble of the Taliban takeover.
I was in a place called Quetta in Pakistan, which was across the border from Kandahar, which was the heartland of the Taliban. So, you know, really the place where that movement had come from. That's Catherine Philp, a foreign and diplomatic correspondent for The Times. She's just come back from her latest trip to Afghanistan, a country she first reported on in one of her earliest assignments for the paper during the fall of the Taliban back in 2001. It was the city that the Taliban held on to the longest as the American invasion began and, um, you know, started to dislodge them from power in Kabul. Our enemy is Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda network who were responsible for the events of the 11th of September. The Taliban regime must yield them up or become our enemy also. Unleashing its wrath, America, with the help from Britain, has struck at Taliban targets and terrorist training camps across Afghanistan. One of the most striking things about it was how underdeveloped it was that you could walk into a village in Afghanistan and it felt like nothing might have changed there since biblical times. The people there lived these incredibly simple lives and there was very, very little sign of of external Western influence. What happened after the Taliban had been chased from power was that you saw this sudden influx of foreign influence, aid organisations, embassies, businesses. You got Afghan refugees or exiles who'd lived in the States and stuff who started coming back to the country because they saw opportunity and they saw hope. The cities in Afghanistan suddenly just sort of exploded with building work, with expansion, with new projects. And very little was changing in the countryside. So I think that the experience of the NATO intervention, the US-led intervention in Afghanistan was incredibly uneven, depending on who Mm. you were in the country. And you, you have just been back now. This is after the Taliban have been in power for more than a year. How different is it now and how different was it to report on it as a woman in modern Afghanistan? You always used to get quite a lot of leeway. So as a foreign woman, you weren't necessarily expected to follow the same kind of rules that were imposed on Afghan women. Going back this time felt very different and I was going to have to follow the same rules that were being imposed on Afghan women. So, for example, there's all sorts of uh, all sorts of edicts. I'm sure that you know everyone's heard of. Girls are once again being stopped from going to secondary school. There's some much more random ones about women not being allowed to walk in parks, or certainly not at the same time that men are there. Women are no longer allowed to buy SIM cards for mobile phones. It's sort of a restriction on freedom and agency. 
One of the most striking things that affected me was that men and women are now completely separate within the workplace. And so this would extend, for example, when I was traveling through the country, I would be taken to a separate room to eat lunch separately from the men. And even my photographer, the Times photographer, Richard Pole, was not allowed to come and, and eat his lunch with me. Similarly, women are no longer allowed to sit in the front seat of the car we may also not sit in the back seat of the car if it is next to a man. I was also asked, we were stopped at a Taliban checkpoint at which we were asked where our maharam were, which is a male escort that you're supposed to need only if you travel 72 kilometres. 72 precisely. 72 precisely. And it's not arbitrary. It is apparently in the Taliban's estimation, the distance that you could walk for three days. But no one asked where I'd come from and where I was going. They just wanted to know where my escort was. So in that instance, my driver and and fixer were able to say they're not Afghan because it was myself and a, a female aid worker. And so we got around it that way. But had we been Afghan women, there would have been problems. Women's rights are one of the aspects that have really changed since the Taliban took over. It's also exposed a number of sort of fundamental issues, you know, real problems facing the country now. Just talk us through the list of urgent problems that Afghanistan faces. What happened when the Taliban took over in in August last year was that it effectively and very swiftly ended more than 20 years of conflict. There has been very minimal resistance in the country. I don't know if that will remain the case or whether the country is simply exhausted by war. One of the pleasurable things about this trip was simply being able to move around the country in a sense of safety. It's the first time I've ever been to Afghanistan without a flak jacket or a helmet. You've also seen a lot of the checkpoints where people would just try and scam money out of people going through. That's all gone. And the Taliban, one of their selling points to the Afghan population is that they clean up corruption and that they are not corrupt and they're not trying to cream off vast amounts of money from people and from contracts coming in to the country. Mm. I'm told from NGOs working there, so far that is sticking. However, part of the problem is there is no money flowing into the country because when the Taliban took over and Westerners evacuated the country, were ordered out by their embassies who all closed up shop and left, including aid workers who then returned a few months later. And what didn't come back was the money, apart from the money that's gone directly to aid organisations. So what has not come back is the central Mm. bank assets, which are about $9 have have been frozen in the US. There have been negotiations to get that released and brought back, but it is very complex because of the number of individuals within the Taliban regime who are under sanctions. But here is the other killer figure, is that the way that teachers are paid, the way civil servants are paid, doctors, hospitals, 80% of that money came from Western aid, and it's gone. So you see people who ought to have very nice middle-class jobs who just simply have not been paid for most of the last year. 
what are the implications of that? What are you mm. seeing on, on the ground? There's no liquidity in the country. You can't get money in and out. The currency itself has crashed. I think it's worth about half what it was, which means that prices are very high. Imports are very expensive. What has created a perfect storm is that Afghanistan was facing its second severe drought in two years. It's a country that is extremely vulnerable to, to climate change. And so these kind of droughts used to be a, really a once-in-a-generation experience. And now mm. you've had it two years running, and most farmers have lost two years' crops. And Catherine, you know, as you said, a lot of the aid that used to come from Western governments has stopped some aid agencies have managed to go back in and are having to find a way of working around the Taliban government. One of those aid agencies, Afghan Aid, you were actually visiting them. How are they managing to function? They started 40 years ago during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So they've got a very long history of working in very, very difficult circumstances, with, including during the last time that the Taliban were in power. So they tread a very apolitical line. They say it's their job to get along with whoever is in government, but to work through local communities at a very grassroots level. But yes, they have had to adapt. They've had to segregate their office in Kabul. There's been very peculiar demands from the Taliban that they've accepted. <laughs> We went to an emergency food distribution and the local governor in Gore had insisted that men and women who were receiving big sacks of wheat flour and pulses and oil and things like that, they'd insisted that men and women could not receive the food distributions at the same times, even in the same locale. <laughs> We were there on the day that they were handing out to the women. And so the women were brought into a compound and they each went up and registered and got their staff. And the men were all waiting outside with donkeys and motorbikes and things to then come in and help them carry the stuff back. But it's that kind of level of interference that's going on. It must be quite frustrating given the scale of the problem they're trying to address. I mean, just give us a sense of, for a lot of the areas that they're working in, how much of a problem is starvation, for example, you know, food supplies? Over 90% of the country is food insecure. You've got the starts of famine in the worst affected areas. Now, the other thing that I think is quite indicative is that Afghan aid said that 80% of their work was development. So, you know, we're talking about things like schooling or trying to set up businesses or women's empowerment, literacy. Now, 80% of their work is emergency. So they are at the stage where they are just trying to get these people through winter alive. Coming up, is it time for the West to engage with the Taliban to avoid Afghanistan sinking into oblivion? That's after 
A quick message from a colleague. I'm Matthew Campbell, Foreign Features Editor at the Sunday Times. I've always had a hunger for news, finding out things about parts of the world away from the beaten track. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, we're just walking into village Lokamazar. It's rather beautiful. It's set between the hills and the river, which is very low because of the drought. It was a massive hotspot for the fight between the government and the Taliban during the last five years. On top of a hill in the rural village of Lokamazar stands a police outlook post. And it's an extraordinary structure that is popped up on top of this crag of rock. It looks out over the whole village and across the river. Just three months before the capital, Kabul, fell to the Taliban in August 2021, this strategic vantage point on a hill in the village of Loka Mazar had become a magnet for the Taliban. And what happened one night was that the Taliban came here and began very heavily firing on this position in order to take it back from the police. And once the Taliban had taken it, that's when the government sent in air support and bombed the village. And all of the people here had to flee. And when they came back, Those government airstrikes aimed at taking out the Taliban ended up destroying half of the houses in the village. Locals had to leave. After the Taliban took over, the violence calmed down and Afghan aid were able to visit areas like Loka Mazar that they hadn't been able to reach in years. Earlier this month, Catherine went with them to see the projects they'd been working on in the village. Alongside an interpreter, Catherine met some of the people who'd lost their homes, including Ghulam Sarwat and his family. He was the first man I met, so he had the misfortune to be living right under the police outpost and I think he sort of, the way he rather wearily told this story was that he knew the second that they built it there that they were in trouble, that this was going to happen. And so when the fighting happened, he didn't stick around to see his 
house destroyed. He actually took his family away, went to stay in the next village. And uh, and they came back the following day to see what happened and found that their house was completely destroyed and, you know, it was still burning. Yeah, I was crying. He described going through the rubble and trying to just rescue a few simple possessions. Yeah. Only some blanket and some small things were there and I collected. When the Taliban took over, realizing that this really meant the end of the conflict, came back and pitched a tent next to where his house had been and sort of scratched his head and thought, well, what do I do now? What he ended up doing was sending his eldest two sons to Iran to look for work. And this is quite a common coping mechanism in Afghanistan in times of need. But of course, Things are not going very well in Iran at the moment either, and they have their own economic crisis. And so it's been pretty hard scrabble for those Afghans who have sent family members to Iran in the hopes of making some money. What does it look like now when you visit? What Afghan aid did was they went in and just flattened the ruined houses and started again and rebuilt these very, very simple houses. They're very nice houses. They've got glass windows. They've got two rooms and a kitchen, which is quite normal in an Afghan house. They have latrines outside. There's no running water in these places, but they were doing what they could to make sure that they fit the requirements of sanitation in in that part of the world. But the people were absolutely delighted with them. What was extraordinary to me was to find out that the cost of these houses was only between a Fifteen hundred and $1,800. So, Abdul, this village is your project. Yeah. Can you tell us what you've done here? <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, the engineer, you know, I spoke to who sort of masterminded, he said, oh, the villagers here have never been to Dubai. So now they think this is Dubai. <laughs> and, and I sort of said, you know, let's be clear, this is no Dubai. It still looks like an Afghan village. Yeah. But to them, you know, they're just well-made good homes for them that their families can build a life, hopefully, in peace in. The big change came for the, the people, and people now know how to life. They see, uh, know the benefits of life. One of the families to receive a new house from Afghan aid was Ghulam Sawat's. We met him a few days after he'd moved in and he just had the biggest smile on his face. All his little daughters with him and one son of 18 who hadn't gone to Iran. And he said that he had already recalled the boys from Iran and was expecting them to come back any day. And so he was sort of planning a a wonderful celebration for, you know, the return of his prodigal sons and for the other villagers who'd been scattered to the four winds and had Mm. to go and live with relatives wherever they could. It was an incredibly heartwarming thing to see that not only did these people have decent homes to live in, but their community had been brought back together again. 
earlier, you sort of told us a bit about what it's like to you know, even just try to operate as a journalist out there now as a woman and how much mm. things have changed for women in the country. That's also something that Afghan Haid have been looking at, trying to make women self-sufficient. Probably my favourite day of the whole trip was uh, visiting um, a women's self-help group in a village quite high up in the mountains in an area called Lal. And they're from the Hazara group. Legend has it that they are the descendants of Genghis Khan. They have a slightly more liberal attitude towards women as well. They tend to prioritize female education, for example. Now, what Afghanaid had done there some three years ago was they'd set up this self-help group. They were organizing women into groups of about 20 and providing some seed money and some training and equipment, depending on what kind of businesses these women fancied trying their hand at. And so these women had been happily going along for their monthly meetings. And at each meeting, every woman involved would make a contribution of 50 Afghanis, which is a, a nominal sum. Those were the women who were working. And so they would build up this fund. And then when it got to a certain amount and someone else wanted to start another business, they would come to a decision through consensus about who they would loan this money to. So then sort of like a microcredit scheme. So this money would then be loaned to one of the other women who mm. could start her business. And then she would be bringing in income that she would could put back into the group. And, and, and so it went on. So it's a very sustainable project. And what sort of businesses would they be launching? a particularly enterprising woman was actually running a village shop because she realised that there was nowhere in the village for people just to buy everyday things without having to go all the way down the mountain to the bazaar in Laos. But at the same time, she also had a little tailoring workshop. Some of the higher earning businesses involved some quite traditional Afghan crafts, like there's this kind of boiled wool that they would make this fabric, which you could make into rugs or into these rather beautiful jackets and that kind of stuff used to go to Kabul and get sold there in markets where there was more money in the country and so they could get quite good prices for that. Now one of the funniest things was firstly that because you know not much happens in little mountain villages in in rural Afghanistan yeah. it's always very exciting when someone comes so everyone <laughs> wanted to be in the room including all the men and I just turned around to the men and said no you, you're not coming in you, this is I want this to be like it as if it were the women's self-help groups and it took them quite a long time to dislodge all the men from the room because they really thought they ought to be there but eventually we got them all out and then and you know and then we got the proper talking it did seem to have given the women an incredible sort of sense of self-respect to be a breadwinner in their family. And for many of them now, earning more money than their husbands were. And they talked very movingly about how their status within the family had changed and how they got more respect from the men. And also that they weren't just bringing the money home that they'd earned yeah. and handing it over to the man as the head of the household, that they were holding onto it and making yeah. the decisions about how it was spent. So, you know, it meant that children's school fees got paid and books yeah. got bought for them and that kind of thing. And it was also a, a sort of a social opportunity. It reminded me kind of of a 
of a book club or something, as in they were getting together to discuss their businesses. But it would start with everyone checking in with each other and talking about what was going on in their family. There was quite a lot of laughter about how much complaining about the men folk um, would take place before they they actually got down <laughs> to any discussion of their business. Um, some, some things are the same the world over. <laughs> they really are, and I, I think that that was what I, I, I liked so much about it was that it, it the whole thing just did feel like rather fun get together with your girlfriends. We just happened to be sitting on the floor of a mosque talking about boiled wool. One of the really extraordinary things that Afghan aid told me afterwards was that they had registered an 80% drop in domestic violence amongst the families that were involved in these women's self-help groups. And I think that that really clearly reflects how the women's ability to do income earning work gives her more status in the family and more respect. That's amazing. So it's Mm. it's making a real difference. And has it been easy for them to be able to to do that work since the Taliban came into power? Because it was always described as a women's empowerment project, they quite rightly took some fright when the Taliban came in and thought, hold on, the Taliban aren't going to like women organising in this way. And so they just disbanded it off their own bat, really out of fear. And then Afghan aid came back to the village and said, no, it's okay. So they had only recently kind of re-established the group. But one thing that was very interesting discussing with Afghan aid is how you can't really call projects things like women's empowerment anymore because it's very threatening to the Taliban. And I think self-help group was a post Taliban description. Um, You you don't want to scare the horses and have the Taliban thinking that you're kind of raising some female army in the the mountains who are going to come and take over. I mean, it's amazing the work they're managing to do despite the Taliban government, but... Obviously, you know, from what you've told us, for all the work they're doing, it's still not enough. Are we now at a stage where international governments are going to have to stop and think about whether they engage with the Taliban in order to help the people? I think they are. There was some hope that there was progress on releasing this $9 billion in central bank assets that's tied up in America. But as far as I know, those negotiations took quite a hit when it was suddenly discovered by the Americans that the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zahawahiri, was living in the middle of Kabul, quite clearly with the Taliban's connivance. My fellow Americans... The United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed the emir of al-Qaeda. You know, Zawiri was uh, bin Laden's leader. He was his number two man, his deputy at the time of the terrorist attack 9-11. The Taliban themselves are not doing themselves any favours whatsoever in terms of their diplomatic relations with others. They just really aren't making many friends out there. One thing that some of us predicted uh, was that you 
could see a rather sort of cynical influx of investment from places like China, who would really like to get their hands on some of the mining concessions in Afghanistan that have never really been exploited because of the conflict. Afghanistan's natural resources are almost endless, including the rare earths that everyone wants to get their hands on. They're called the vitamins of modern life because they're in everything from your your iPhone to your Tesla. But even the Chinese are looking pretty warily at the Taliban government right now. And let's just say they're not rushing in. But that is, I think, what the Taliban are hoping the future of their country will be. I think they're putting a lot of store in the potential to exploit the natural resources there. When you're talking to people on the ground, how do they feel about the idea of of the West engaging with the Taliban? I mean, I think if if you're involved in aid work in Afghanistan, you can't really imagine another way to save this country from ruin without doing that. Charles Davey, who's the managing director of Afghan aid, uh, I spoke to him about this. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. It does mean financing the government and how well that will play out with the taxpayers who are actually paying those donor funds. Um, it's, a, it's a challenge. He acknowledged the incredible complexity of it and, and how controversial it is and whether donors would want to give that money. Then there does need to be much more openness towards engagement with the government. Uh, we have to find a solution to this. The Taliban is, we call them the de facto government, They are, in fact, the government. (laughs) But I just feel that some more positive engagement would be the more constructive way to go. He said one way or another, we have to engage in some way because it's not the Taliban that are suffering, it's Afghans, ordinary Afghans. Afghan Aid is one of the three charities you can support by donating to the Times and the Sunday Times Christmas Appeal this year. I know times are tough, but if you are able to donate, your money will go a long way. Just £20 buys a farmer 4kg of drought-resistant seeds. £100 pays for a woman to receive 15 chickens and the training and tools to start a micro-business. Your donation would be life-changing. You can find out more about The Times and The Sunday Times Christmas Appeal at thetimes.co.uk slash christmasappeal. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, diplomatic correspondent for The Times, Catherine Philp. The producer today was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield. And sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.